Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Space Game Junkie Podcast. As always, I'm your co-host, Brian. And joining me, as always, is your co-host, Jim. I'm the Batman. Wait, no, Scatman. Sorry, wrong song. Wasn't that a thing? Wasn't that a thing? Isn't that a thing? Yeah, like that is a, th- there's a song called The Scat Man. Yeah, I remember. Oh I my god, thought, I remember well, that. It'd be cool if it was like, I'm the Batman. <laughs> is that what they were mimicking? Like, were they making fun no. of Batman? Oh. No, it's uh, it's just a scat jazz thing. Oh, that's just what happened. Uh, yeah, also, Scatman oh. Brothers. And he, was that on The Simpsons? Shining. No, that was the guy no. who was in The Shining. He played the the bald black guy. That was Scatman. No, I I haven't yeah. seen I haven't seen The Shining, and I only saw I it the one time. Man. No, I only saw Shining the one time, and I will not. I have not had any interest. There should be, in. there should be a superhero <laughs> called Spoon Man, and then they play that song like every time. Well, no. uh, the Tick. That's his. Um, that's his battle cry. Is spoon. Oh yeah, that's true. Uh, also joining us is your co-host Spaz. To save our mother Earth from an alien attack. EDF. <laughs> as, I, as I am actually playing EDF. Oh, really? There it is. <laughs> yeah, well, I've got EDF 5 in the background. When is it going to come to PC? On the brain. God damn it, it needs to come to PC. Ugh. Yes, it does. I it's need so it. good. I'm, I need, I'm enjoying the hell out of it. I need it. Are they still, are they still selling that $20 game for 60 bucks though? Because that's no. really my only beef. You mean 4.1? No, they, they did a price drop last it's year. It's 20, yeah. Well, I mean, but whenever it came out. See, the original EDF games were like a $20, you know, like budget title kind of thing, right? But they were cool budget title. But now they've got too proud of that shit. And they're like, this is a $60 budget title. And then they have low population because of. So I'm just thinking, like, if they got back to their roots and actually priced it where it needs to be, then the lobbies would be packed. How much was the PS4 version, uh, Spaz? Oh, I got to check offhand. While, while Spaz is doing that, uh, folks, we have a guest this week joining us from Vancouver up in Canada. Uh, Jeff, oh, God, I is it Nagy? Maggie? Yeah, you got it. Nagy. All right. I should have asked. I, I said this last week. I should have asked before we started recording. Uh, Jeff is the developer of the recently released first-person space combat game uh, Hypergate, which if you follow the YouTube channel, you saw that I did a, a series on, I think it was a week ago, and really, really super enjoyed it. So uh, we wanted to bring uh, Jeff on to talk about the game because uh, – we were talking about this before the show, but I just wanted to say there aren't enough really good first-person space combat games being made out there right now. I mean, yeah, you got your Free Space 2 and all your mods, and they're all wonderful. Uh, I'm just going to say, Jeff, right now, your game is great, but Free Space 2 is still the king of all of this. Just just wanted to be on, just wanted to get that out there. Yeah, um, Jeff, why didn't you make a Free Space mod? No. I'll put that on the uh, list of things to do. I guess <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not trying to disparage your game. I'm just saying it's it's that is a very high bar to overcome, and you're up there, man. It's it's. I mean, folks, if you haven't played Hypergate, it's basically take Free Space 2's 40 mission campaign and condense it into 10 mission. It's like 30, 40 missions. Condense. I can't remember offhand. Condense it into like 10. 
And instead of the campaign being like 20, 30 hours, it's like three. But it's it has the same like uh, high points. It's got the same combat, like really fun combat. It's got the same like uh, set. It's got a lot of similar set pieces to, to games that have come before it. So you, you're getting a condensed experience. You're getting like a similar yet condensed experience. Uh, and it's really a lot of fun. Uh, so again, thank you for making, uh, Jeff, such a fun, uh, a game that just, you know, it's not trying to be anything it isn't. Like, I know we all love the X games and the Evercron games, but those are trading games that just happen to have some combat, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, I totally do. Thanks very much, Brian, for saying so. Uh, that's exactly what I wanted Hypergate to be. So I uh, really appreciate that. And uh, thanks for having me today. So remind. Uh, so so let's start at the beginning. When did you start working on uh, Hypergate? And was the impetus that you wanted a game like this and no one was making it? Or were you playing something and were like, I can do a better job? Like, how did this get off the ground? Yeah, so that's a that's a really great question. It's 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 a bit of a long story, um, but you know, uh, I've always watched a lot of like those really cool Star Wars space battles where they're, they're the scale of these battles, like say, you know, in Revenge of the Sith or or anything else like that. Just the scale of the battle just feels like it's kilometers wide. And I hadn't played any games up to that point, um, and I'm I'm not a huge gamer, so it's possible that something like there exists, but I haven't I I just hadn't been exposed to it. But I really wanted to develop a game that sort of brought you into that chaos of that huge battlefield where you felt like you were just one ship among many and just sort of more fighting for your survival rather than trying to win uh, in a certain sense. And so um, I made numerous attempts when I was younger to make a game of that kind of scale, but I, I uh, didn't really have the uh, the commitment or the uh, or the technical know-how to do that. Um, but five five or six years ago, um, I, I sat down and I uh, created all the documents. I started writing the story, and uh, I found some folks who were willing to do some voice acting for me. And uh, over the last five years, uh, during my part-time, uh, sort of a part-time hobbyist sort of endeavors, I've been uh, working on and eventually finished Hypergate. So that, that's interesting you bring that up, because there there are space sims that there aren't a lot of them that put you into these massive battles like free space does a good job and tie fighter to an extent, but a mm-hmm. lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of space games are like have a smaller box with less mm-hmm. in it. Yeah. And you have an objective to win a certain objective. You have a, like destroy these canisters or scan that ship, you know, but yeah, when you mention survival, that's a very good point. There aren't a lot of, I mean, usually there's a, maybe a mission or two where you have to, like, scramble and the carrier has to survive and so do you, blah, blah, blah. But, like, not a lot of games are, like, give you survival as the focus of the whole thing, which is really puts a different feel to it. It's not like I'm, it's not like I'm trying to kill this one ship. It's like I got to survive 70, 80 fighters coming at me, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and no, absolutely. The – um. Well, I don't mention survival specifically. It's not, you know, it's not like, yeah, so that, that is a great point. So survival is not mentioned, you know, sort of explicitly, uh, you know, in the mission objectives, you know, the mission objective is, you know, complete this objective or destroy all the enemy fighters. That's, that's really what it is. Destroy everybody else. Um, but I, I really wanted to sort of implicitly make the player feel like they were fighting for their survival while they were doing these combat missions. That, that's yeah. really the feel that I was trying to go for. And, and I have to say you succeeded because, uh, what it remind me, what engine, which engine are you using? Um, I wrote my engine from scratch. Actually, I wrote my own engine oh, in the course of five years. 
So that that kind of explains it because you have. I mean, I've got a pretty good computer. I just had it built, but still, there are hundreds of thi- like objects, fighters, cap ships, jump gates, those artillery turrets, which are I love those by the way. Um, <laughs> Thanks. Those things are great. I wish more games had things like that. Um, yeah, like you. I mean, the the mission I'm playing uh, in the in the background of the stream here is the penultimate mission of the campaign. And I think my kill count in that mission was like 270-something. Uh, yeah. And because uh, stuff just kept coming through the gates and coming through the gates and coming through the gates. And even with all that on the screen going on, all the lasers and all the trajectories for all the lasers and all the – just so much going on, there was no slowdown. It was fluid. It like really felt great. I have to say, and that that is that might be one of many reasons people not a lot of people do these is because getting that combat feel, that first person combat feel, just right, is tricky. You know, getting getting that getting that World War Two in space feeling of skirting about and shooting a bunch of stuff right, like like Tie Fighter and whatnot, is not easy. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um. So uh, I really felt that scale was important. There needed to be a lot of fighters and needed to be a lot of capital ships, you know, things like that. Um, so because I wrote my engine from scratch, I had a great deal of freedom in terms of how to optimize things. Uh, one thing that was also uh, that I initially considered kind of a setback, um, but it's actually uh, quite uh, advantageous uh, in the long run, is that uh, my laptop is quite old. It's five years old. It was new when I started, but now it's old <laughs> uh, <laughs> at the conclusion of my development. So I, I knew that if I could get it running on this five-year-old laptop, at interactive rates, then it would run pretty much for anybody. And that was, uh, I wanted to take advantage of that rather than, you know, have really, really advanced post-processing effects or things like that. And there are some um, post-processing effects there, but I I, I calibrated them and tuned them specifically to make sure they would run at interactive rates on this old laptop here so that they could run for practically anybody. I, I can, I get that because like, I wouldn't call the graphics simple, but they're effective. And, one of my favorite things is the explosions. I love the explosions. Oh, way. thanks. Yeah, I realized that uh, a lot of um, game design, uh, like textbooks and things like that, they they like to talk about. They want the player to feel like a badass. You know, that's that's really what that's yes. really what um, you know some players really enjoy. And so I thought, well, you know, explosions, a really cool, satisfying explosion, is sort of a really good conclusion to that. You know five or 10 second mini game of you trying to target that fighter just right or whatever it is or blowing up a couple targets in succession you know that it looks good it feels good and so i put a lot of effort i reworked the explosions a ton of times i wrote a custom particle engine and an editor even um in c-sharp.net <laughs> just to, just so i could get all the effects that i wanted to put in there yeah because i mean the, the way the effects just bloom out of the ship that just blew up for both little ships and big ships is just really satisfying that's a really good word for it It, it's really just satisfying to kill a thing in this game and there's so many things to kill (laughs) oh my god never lacking targets the mission where you have to kill the satellites and stuff and then there's Mm -hmm. some some big ships do you have does the mission not end until like every turret and every satellite is destroyed because I because I had to fly around and like pop turrets off the big cap ships and stuff and yeah so that's that's them to die that's a really great point so you're the second person I've actually talked to who asked that question they they said well you know if I just target all the satellites is the mission over do I have to take out all the other targets and the answer is yeah um 
you know, the game might give you, um, you know, some, some complex objectives, but ultimately everything can be sort of simplified to just blow everything up. Uh, the turrets, the satellites, uh, enemy ships, everything. Okay. Yeah. Kill yeah. And I noticed I, I started out playing it on, on like medium and then I cranked it up to hard. How, how many mm. difficulty levels are there? Is there four? four yeah, there's four. Okay. Yeah. Cause I, I was, I took it up to the third one. Right. And at that point, the enemy ships actually started to be a bit of a threat, but I, I felt like under that, I, I was unless I was dumb and flew like right in front of a cap ship and begged it to shoot me. Uh, <laughs> it, it didn't make me sweat too much. But then uh, once the enemy fighters actually started popping missiles at me about mission four, um, and it, is is that behavior because I took the difficulty up, or it takes that far into the game before they actually get weird about wanting to kill you? That yeah no uh, it's it's the latter. So uh, what happened was you don't learn the ability to counteract missiles until the fourth mission, the the Hilson mission, the the Hilson mission, the the big the big oh, okay. planet below you. So I didn't I did not want to introduce too many mechanics too soon, and that was one of the last ones. So I so I, I left that till about the fourth mission, and then I'd say this is how you use your EMP, and then uh, at that point the player can now be exposed to all these threats, including missiles, and then they're sort of on their own after that point. Oh, okay, yeah, because yeah. because it, it was like. Hey, and you'll see a meter that tells you when the missile's close and use your thing. And I'm like, where's the meter? Pop. And I was dead. And <laughs> so I never did find the meter. Uh, but it's, uh, yeah, so the missile's coming in. I, I couldn't figure out, like, where to see where the missile's coming from. Or, or like I said, what, like the, the counter where it's supposed to be. And it, it, had I replayed the mission a couple of times, it probably would have, like, I'd have found it eventually. But, um, but it was kind of startling, like, to go from well, they haven't really done anything. I've been hit a couple of times, right? But, you know, it hits your shield. It's not a big deal it, mm-hmm. to go into, like, getting one shot by a missile. And it's like, oh, okay, it's real now. So. <laughs> yeah, the missiles are a one-hit kill weapon. Um, yeah, so there should be a meter that shows up on the uh, sort of the bottom right-hand corner of your cockpit, uh, a little a little red meter that slowly counts down. Um, it may be the case that it needs to be a little bit brighter. Uh, there's also a, a brief, not an alarm, but a little warning beep that goes off. Uh, when oh, okay. the missile when the missile shows up, so, but um, yeah, yeah. It, like what I would alter with that is have a beep that starts at a certain pace, and the closer the missile gets, the faster the beep gets, and then turns to a steady tone or something whenever you can actually use the EMP. So it would just you know you you just kind of listen to it like beep 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 boop, and you know you know to hit the thing. Um, but I don't know if that makes it maybe too easy. Because then you just got an audio cue, and I know, like, okay, yeah, hit the C key quick. Yeah, it definitely is sort of a delicate balance between. Uh, I, I I do like to emphasize the fact that awareness is kind of key um, at higher levels of difficulty in hypergates. So you you do need to know what's going on going on around you. You can't really see the missiles because they move very fast and they're very small. But the uh, the meter should definitely be more noticeable. So that mm-hmm. might warrant a change. That's a good point. Do the missiles have like a vapor trail behind them? They do. I think. Yeah. Okay. Because I, I was looking around for that, and it's like I don't see it. I don't see it pop. <laughs> so maybe. So that one, the missile that's targeting you there, is just is actually part of the uh, event system. It, it's kind of. Uh, I actually ended up having to choose a particular location in the world where the missile would sort of magically spawn um, at a certain distance and going at a certain speed in order to, and so that the player would have enough time to see it coming and that uh, okay. sort of thing. So it's not it's not being fired by a ship, so it might be difficult to figure out. I'm not even sure. I can't even recall what direction. Yeah, I might, I I might have been facing the wrong them. way to see it. So yeah. Yeah, but yeah, that's a very valid point. 
Yeah, with the yeah. with the engine that you've got, I have a I have a game design in mind, right? Like if you wanted to knock another game out with this real quick, um, you could probably do it pretty quick, actually. But it but it's basically like take what you got and then it becomes like a procedurally generated almost roguelike thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but there there is there did you ever play the old uh, Atari game? Uh, oh God, what was it called? Star Raiders. No, I haven't. Okay, because Interactive Magic, or iMagic, rather, um, made a game that's called Star Rangers. And it's available, I think, on GOG, where you can get it from. Um, but I I desperately need for somebody to remake that game, because it's from, like, what, <laughs> 1996, I think? And uh, it, it's damn near the perfect space game. Really? Wow. As far, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Because it's got different missions in it. But it, um, well, like uh, you have all the elements there basically to make it. I don't, I don't think you need many more assets, right? But it's, uh, it'll have the map and it'll say, okay, enemies are coming to kill our star bases. You have to destroy, you have to defend the star bases. So you look at the map and you have satellites that, that are out there. And if enemies come into the zone of vision of a satellite, then you see where they're at on the map. Well, if the enemies destroy the satellite, then you got a blind spot in your sensor net. So then you have to go out and stop them from destroying your satellites. And you can pick satellites up and go and replace them out there to to you know give yourself better eyes. But you have to balance doing that with actually killing stuff. And then some missions that'll be like, okay, there's transport ships trying to get out of the sector. Instead of defending the star base, you're defending moving targets that are trying to get out. And the enemy will spawn somewhere and then they make, you know, they make a path toward whatever the objective is, like killing your satellites on the way. And uh, you have like a hyperspace thing. So you can pick a sector and be like, okay, I'm going to jump to there. And then you pop out of hyperspace and it generates, you know, like whatever is around there. So on the map, it's like, okay, well, there's, there's like six, eight ships here. And then when you pop out of hyperspace, it just spawns that many ships in front of you and you got to deal with it. Um, and it's, and it's a pretty good dogfight thing. And then it, it's because, you know, it, it just kind of creates the mission area on the fly based on wherever on the map you went. So I'm looking at your game and I'm thinking, yeah, this could do exactly that real fast. So, and cause you've got the dogfight thing down and like the rest of it, I'll, I'll show it to you whenever we're done here and you'll, you'll, probably see it and be like yeah i could do that that would yeah, be sure. i'd love to check it out those sound like that, really uh really cool mechanics oh it's, yeah, the game, it's neat it's a the really fun the game simplicity yeah. of it. oh yeah. and the the hyperspace thing is also a mini game because depending on like how far the hyper gate is and how quickly you jump then uh like if you because everything's like time-based right so if you sit and wait then the hyperspace tunnel gets more straight. But if you're like, oh God, I got to get over there in a hurry. So you, you just hit the thing in the map. Don't let the computer calculate the jump and hit jump. Then you get like a windy ass tunnel. You got to fly down. So, oh, neat. Yeah, it's it's really cool. Just the subtle little stuff that they did. I'll be the uh, the first to admit uh, and the, or the first to point out that I uh, I really, <laughs> I consider myself more of a programmer slash developer uh, than someone who really plays a lot of games. So my space gaming experience is, uh, uh, I, I suppose, embarrassingly small, um, which is both, uh, I guess, a blessing and a curse, depending on which way you look at it. <laughs> well, how did you, how did you arrive at making this game then? 
Like, because usually the people that are making this stuff are the people that played the old school stuff, and we're like, damn it, nobody's doing it. I guess I have. I have played some old school stuff. Uh, probably the best example I can think of, of is the um, the Star Wraith series. So I was a big fan of uh, Star Wraith two and three when they first came out. You know, like years oh, wow. ago. Oh wow! Oh yeah. Yeah, so those are those are you know super super dated now, but uh, I really enjoyed them. You know, the the mechanics were r- relatively straightforward, and so that some of my inspiration came from there. But I thought, you know, you know, we want bigger space battles, and and I received inspiration from you know a couple of other sci fi shows and things like that. And uh, when and and the the honest truth is that when I see a game that I like, or I see a movie scene in space that I like, I don't think, oh man, I really want to play a game like that. Instead, what I think is, oh man, I really want to make a game like that. Oh, nice <laughs> and so like it, nine to five you're a programmer making not games yeah i'm a i'm a phd student uh actually doing robotics so i do sp- I, I do spend a lot of time programming oh so it's gonna be your fault whenever they come back in time <laughs> yeah i get that a lot <laughs> so you're making skynet basically it's, it's okay. uh, skynet actually, with drones no i was just hoping you'd be like uh actually sex robots uh <laughs> no it's it's kind of interesting Mostly drones, actually it's, uh, it's kind of interesting you see you don't have a lot of space game experience yet you the star rate that's a deep cut that is a really really deep cut like like you got to be really in the th- in in the thick of it to know those games yeah but i but, can see why sean's game up uh like intrigued him because Oh that yeah! Whole shit fit on one floppy disk. It generated all of its own <laughs> textures with an algorithm. Yeah, those you games know, are great like, for their time for one yeah. guy. We yeah, need get, we need to get Sean on here. I've big time. I have I have asked him, and he he's not interested. All right. Do you know where he lives? Because <laughs> <awesome. laughs> it, like, it's really from Jim's look, it, basement. I'm not going to say names, but like I've asked a few people who I would love to get on this show to come on, and they're like, I don't like the sound of my own voice, or I am not a native English speaker, or something like. Yeah, we can give them a vocoder or something, man. That's good. I'm just Nobody saying, likes like the sound of their own voice. That's just the way it is. Oh, I hate my own voice. I can't fucking stand it. Excuse me, F- forking stand it. Um. <laughs> Oh, here we go. We have a question from YouTube. Uh, I'm a programmer, and I'm making a space combat game. Are you now? Do you have any advice for game developers? Yes. Stop now. Make no. spreadsheets. <laughs> no. Make spreadsheets. Because- <laughs> don't, don't listen have, to him. I've got lots of advice. Um, hey, give us I, all I of it. We, we love that stuff. Give us all of it. I'll, Every bit of it. I'll teach you everything I know. Yes. Um, <laughs> I actually uh, started a blog uh, a few years ago, sort of uh, sparsely documenting my process on Hypergate, though originally I was going to call it Gateway, but apparently that name was taken from a game from the 90s or something, so I just changed the name. But um, Oh, yeah. I talked a lot about some of the biggest problems that I encountered, and the biggest problems I encountered are not technical because technical knowledge can always be acquired, and you can always learn post-processing effects. You can always learn how to write your own shaders or write your own engine. That that technical knowledge is there. He um, says this, you learn. and I'm going to call bullshit because I've tried <laughs> You have to you have to have a certain modicum of intelligence in order to Okay, go ahead. Yeah, no no worries. Um so okay, yeah, so I mean I'm not saying the technical stuff is easy. It's it's not easy. And and when you put a bunch of technical stuff together, it's important to realize. So I guess there's two things I would say is one, in terms of all the individual technical components that need to go into one game, um the amount of technical effort that you need to put all those technical pieces together, that is greater than the sum of its parts. So just because things things interact, it becomes very complicated, and, and building large systems out of small ones is very tricky. Uh, the second piece of advice I would give 
would be to plan your project out carefully. Um, I've had a lot of failed attempts when I was younger to create something like Hypergate, um, and they failed simply because of feature creep, of scope creep, because I couldn't uh, come up with a commitment to be able to um, stick to one project, things like that, especially when you're working on a project, maybe it doesn't go quite right, and you find another project that might seem better because you know you, there's something gets lost in translation. When you have an idea in your head and you try to put it in the computer, fundamentally something gets lost when that happens and so you need to sort of figure that out but um the way that i overcame that sort of lack of commitment and dedication to big projects was by actually getting into robotics because robotics and electronics is an extremely expensive hobby so whenever you order parts you always have to order duplicates and things break or they explode or whatever have you so you have to carefully plan out your projects and really decide is this worth both my time and my money um, whereas if you're working on game dev, chances are all you're wasting is time and not money. But if you have a limited amount of money, um, and you know, you, you can usually get a little bit more time, you have to plan out your projects a lot more carefully. So I learned from doing robotics and electronics in my own time, how to carefully plan out my projects so that I didn't, that I didn't waste money. And those skills that I learned by that, that discipline that I learned by doing that translated over into uh, my game dev. So that, that, that would be my two pieces of advice there. Um, you know, be careful when you're putting a, lo- a large number of technical things together because it's often a lot more complex than you think. Um, and the second one is uh, make sure you plan your projects carefully and uh, um, and make sure that you can uh, stay committed to what you're working on uh, because it, it seems like you get something for free because you might have you know you might have ten years to write a game, but that cost is not negligible, um, and you have to consider that too. So how do you I hope that wasn't too much of a rant but that that's what I've discovered over the over the over the past many years. So what do you use to chart out your plan? Do you have do you use notebooks, do you have software? What what do you use to chart out your plan? Yeah, um I I use Trello. I, I try to keep everything um I try not to micromanage myself. I mean, I do have certain goals, but they tend to be very sort of high level like say for example, uh a good example is I want to finish missions 4 and 5 by the end of the week. Uh, so that might entail making a few more assets or scripting some more behaviors or making some changes to the engine to support some features that currently don't exist. Um, and I'm aware of all these sort of dependencies and I just sort of list out the high level requirements and I work from there. That way I'm not really micromanaging myself, but um, it's very important to be cognizant, cognizant of those sort of low level requirements so that um, when you are working on something, those high level goals, you're not sort of caught off guard, but keep those high level goals reasonable um, and not too high level. Um, otherwise you will vastly underestimate the amount of time or effort that you have to spend on something. So, uh, so yeah, I, I do use, I do use Trello just to list the high level, um, uh, sort of goals that I have, but uh, that's, that's pretty much it. Just, you know, just like a, a pretty informal high level to-do list. Um, by the way, folks, if you haven't used Trello, check it out. It is the best. Like, I, I, was, I, I was waiting on him when, when you're like, well, so what do you like do all your notes and stuff? And I was waiting on him to be like, oh, yeah, it's Vi. Right. Hey, what? <laughs> like as hardcore as he could go. Like <laughs> I do it all in Vim, dude. Yeah. Vim? What's what, wait, what is that? What is that? It's, it's I'm, the, I'm more of a nano guy myself. <laughs> oh, OK, well, there you go. Pico. What, what is Vim? Right, yeah. what, what is that? Oh, Vim. Vim is the improved version of Vi, which is the. What is Vi even? Is it like visual interactive something? I'm not sure what it stands and, for. Anyway, it's okay. It's Notepad in in Unix. Oh god! Oh god! Yeah. <laughs> but it, but it's worse than you can possibly imagine. <laughs> oh. Like like okay, instead of like Control Control X to cut something, it's actually uh, what is it? KK. 
It's really bizarre. I never, I never really ganked. Wait a minute. What? (laughs) Dude. Okay. So in order to learn by, they actually made like a roguelike game. (laughs) <laughs> play with the text editor commands from Vi, so that you can actually gamify learning this text editor because it is such a demon from hell. Oh, <laughs> oh god! Oh no! It is, dude. Oh. But when you log into a system and it, like where I work at, where I cannot install any software, so it's like, oh shit, Nano's not on the box. <laughs> oh no, I got to go into Vi. Oh no! <laughs> it's like shoot me. It's a fast way to learn, though, I guess, if you don't have any other options here. Uh, yeah, <laughs> basically. You know, it's like, it's like a, that's why I got three monitors at work, because two right. of them are documentation, and one of them is what I'm actually trying to do. So, yeah. <laughs> but folks, so I yeah. want to do, like, we'll, we'll talk about the game, but, like, the whole second half <laughs> of the, the show is going to be about robotics, because I got, <laughs> we I do, got we, things, okay? We're, we're I got big, a lot of robot baggage. We're, we are big robots. And I'm not talking about, like, Pacific Rim <laughs> shit either, although hey. if you want to talk about giant hey. robots, I'm down. That, uh, that that movie's a masterpiece. Um, no, folks, it is, uh, and that's the greatest bit of robot uh, kaiju porn. Wonderful, ever been wonderful. The second one wasn't so bad. I was going in uh, not with really. I went in with real low expectations, and I was very pleasantly surprised. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna express a very unpopular opinion. I watched the new Predator movie. Uh-huh. It was kind of good. Whoa! It was kind of good. Whoa! I, I did not believe it. I went in Whoa! and like, oh, stink fest. I've heard nothing but bad, and I was like, "It's actually kind of good." Hmm. All right. So Why not? We'll just leave it at that. You anyway, know, play, everybody listening at home, you can play the home game. Just go rent it, and uh, <laughs> just go in with low expectations. Yeah, like low expectations. Real if low, you think it's bad? Come fight me. Like I, I finally saw Solo with really low expectations. Still couldn't roll my eyes hard enough at every every <laughs> every piece of winky fan wank that they put in that yeah. movie. Jesus. Yeah. But you know I what? It's when, still the when, best I only watched it with the riff tracks. Oh, oh, there's a riff tracks? Wait, wait, there's a riff tracks? There is a solo riff tracks. <gasps> and it is good. It is okay. a good I'm gonna tell you what, riff, when, so. when when Han said I when 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 Lando said I hate you and Han said I know, my wife got actually mad. She like almost threw something at the television. That's how indignant we were at this movie. <laughs> I could just imagine her in the theater if she, oh, if she just oh, didn't care. We're so She'd glad. Like, God damn it. We're like, so glad we we we're fling a lightsaber at the Yeah, we're so glad we didn't see it at the theater. So glad we didn't see it in the theater. Oh my god! <laughs> it was. It was. It was a friend of mine. I think put it best. It's a fun episode of Firefly. I think that's the best way to look at Solo because it yeah, takes but, so but it's much. It's not like they fun. robbed a train. Oh <laughs> shit! They did. Oh my god! They did. Oh jeez. Anyway, hi folks. Trello. It's amazing if you haven't used it and you do any kind of uh, to dos. It is really the best. I use it for pretty much every facet of a space game junkie, from podcasts to weekly videos to planning to calendars to everything. It's amazing. It's free. You know, uh, I wonder, if is there a podcast about Vi? It would be like, welcome to the Vicast. Uh, I'm your host. Uh, <laughs> if there isn't. about text editors. If, if there isn't, you should make it and, and, and do it because there are a lot of text editors. 
out there and a lot of good ones. Like, I don't know if you know sublime text. That's probably my favorite. Oh yeah. That's my go-to. Actually. Yeah. Love that okay, one. So Vi is actually the opposite of sublime text. Oh no. That's the best way to describe it. Like oh, every, no. everything that you want to do, you have to pay in blood. Oh, yeah. That's terrible. <laughs> anyway, back to hypergate. <laughs> I told you there'd be tangents. It happens. No, no, I'm, I'm down. With- <laughs> oh wait, the tangents start in hour two. Yeah. Yeah, that's the yeah. tangent hour. That's the uh, that's, that's that's what we call tangent time. Uh, no, <laughs> and then in hour twenty seven. <laughs> that's when the real shit hits the fan. We could no. we could save it all up for Thursday night and just call it Thursday night tangents. <laughs> Thursday tangents. <laughs> that wouldn't like be bad. Night Titans, but less wrestling. <laughs> Far less wrestling. <laughs> So, so okay, so right now this game has 10 missions in its campaign, and the campaign lasts uh, about three hours. Um, is that so – We because the way you ended it – and I don't want to be too spoilery, but the way you ended it totally left the door open for more. Uh, was that I- intentional, or is it completely self-contained at this point? No, it is it is totally intentional. I do not yes. think the story of the NIA is over. And oh, I think good. there's a, I've, I've got a long document of other things that I would like to try. So I would definitely Ooh. like to release, uh, you know, late this year or before this year is out. Um, probably around an additional ten missions that explore sort of the next chapter of humanity trying to survive in the face of this threat that they really do not understand. Very nice. Very very nice. Because yeah, the way the way it ended, it was like, oh god, this this is like you could drive a Mack truck through this door he left open to uh, <laughs> for more stuff, which I was fine with. I'm like, I want more, you know. So I thought I thought that was great, but you still, even if this is the only ten missions you got, you still told a really good story. And I gotta say, you said you uh, got voice actor friends to help you uh, earlier. Um, yeah, the voice acting here was. For an, especially for an indie project, really good. Like, how many voice actors did you have? Um, I'd, I'd have to flip through the credits menu um, uh, to check that out, but I think it's probably around around the order of about a dozen. Uh, so I had some friends, you know, that were uh, pretty outgoing, you know, and uh, you know, pretty brave. And I said, hey, you know, how would you guys like to do this? Uh, you know, this and uh, keep in mind, this was about four or five years ago, just when I'd finished writing the script, uh, which is about sixteen pages long. And I said, hey, how would you guys like to come together and we could all have a fun, you know, couple afternoons of recording? And I grabbed my recorder. We went into uh, a room uh, in one of the labs of my old university, and uh, and I said, okay, I can't really promise you guys much, but I'll give you guys a free copy of the game if it, if I ever finish it, and then you guys, and then I'll take you guys out for coffee. You know what I mean? That was really all I could really do. And, but my friends had a great time. So, uh, um, you know, despite the fact they were giving their time to me, uh, to, to do this uh, as a favor, um, everyone had a really great time and it was a lot of fun and they did, I think they did a really good job. Yeah, it was, it was really competent and like it, it, it actually had like weight to it. Like it wasn't like, cause like we were talking about before the show, like you hear games, with some voice acting and you're like, wow, they had a boat payment. Or something like, you know, they had a house payment. That's what they're doing. <laughs> you know, that's the only reason they're doing this. But you can tell the, you guys. Uh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, please. 
Oh, one of my, uh, I guess, biggest beefs about some games that I've played, and I'm not saying that I that I have solved this problem, of, of course not, but I mean, there is uh, some games that I play, the, the audio comes out a little bit too crisp, a little bit too perfect, and the mm. characters don't really seem like they're interacting with each other when they talk. And so one thing I, I really tried to do is... Uh, try to make it sound like the characters are interacting a little. I'm I'm not sure if I succeeded in that regard, but I definitely didn't want things sounding too perfect because I think that's one thing that a lot of games do suffer from and you kind of fall into that uncanny valley. And um, I'm not trying to solve that problem by going so far over the uncanny valley that I surpass it successfully, but uh, um, <laughs> by being a little less perfect, I hope I've managed to uh, make that valley not quite so deep in a sense. Yeah, I mean... It felt like it. It felt like lived-in dialogue. You know, it felt it felt um, like like I said, it had weight to it, and that that was really nice. Like, yeah, because you you play some games and you're like, wow, you guys, did you record this separately? Like in, right. at different yeah. days, different times. Like, like and and voice acting is not the easiest thing. And and I I no, you know, no. but uh, but you 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 guys did a good job. I thought and. And it's it's nice to see an indie project that has voice acting because a lot of them don't. You know, it's again, it's not easy to get good voice actors. Um, so I feel like you're lucky that you had friends who were willing to willing enough to uh, to uh, put their time, you know, into the game for you. Thanks. Yeah. No, I'm I really appreciate that. Um, I'm, I'm glad you like it. Uh, a couple of my friends were a little bit hesitant, and they're like, "Well." You know, sort of the same sort of complaints uh, that you mentioned that some folks were having about um, being on the show, on your show. You know, they say they don't like the sound of their own voice or, you know, they don't think their their voice sounds good, things like that. I just told them no one likes the sound of their own voice. And if it really helps, what I'll do is I'll prompt you. I have this image in my head about how I want the line to be delivered. And one technique that I found was very successful was um, – and I discovered this sort of uh, later on in the voice acting process that if I voice the line the way that I think it should be delivered, even if it's a little bit extreme or over the top or, you know, just, just sounds out of place because we're in, you know, a quiet lab somewhere or something like that, they would much more readily deliver the line in a really convincing fashion if I were to give them the line immediately beforehand the way I wanted it to be delivered. Oh, okay. It's easier to mimic when you have something to work off of. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, one thing I'm, I'm sure people are going to want to know, um, this is your own engine. So is there any chance of an editor or any kind of modability? Because you'll, right now you only have one ship. And, you know, it's fine. But, you know, I, I'd love some more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. So um, – I won't be releasing modding tools or editing tools, mostly because I feel that people get really frustrated with those tools because I'm, I'm familiar with the tools. I built them for myself, my level editor, my particle editor, you know, the, the, the scripting stuff that I, that I wrote. And so I feel that people would probably be a little bit frustrated with me if I were to release a set of unsupported tools because I don't like to release anything that's not finished and polished, at least to my eyes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I could just put a disclaimer on there that says, you know, these are unsupported tools, kind of like with the original Battlefront modding tools for the, the very first Star Wars Battlefront. Um, I could do something like that. But um, I suppose I could satisfy your desire for other ships by pointing out that I do intend to actually provide additional ships for you to fly as well as additional equipment to equip. So there is not only is there going to be more uh, sort of uh, depth by adding to the missions, uh, but also a little bit more breadth by providing some additional equipment that you can fly. 
That's cool. Uh, no complaints I, I, here. Uh, no complaints. <laughs> and I also have to say I like the variety of um, – even though there's only four of each, like they feel pretty different. Like the four guns and the four you know shields, they act quite different. And One I, thing I, I learned from um, – I, I remember reading something. Uh, maybe it was a game design book or and, and something I also picked up when I was playing uh, a couple of video games is that when – even when you get like a trivial upgrade to a weapon that maybe increases its power only slightly, the, the like for example, the uh, the upgrades in Hypergate are sort of incremental. You know, each uh, – for the most part, each upgrade is not a significant improvement from the last, but overall you, you do get much more powerful equipment. But I've played, for example – uh, Dead Space. I'm a huge fan of the Dead Space series, and I remember playing the first one. And every time you added a new upgrade or something like that onto your gun or up or upgraded your weapons, um, it just felt more powerful. It felt good to shoot. And so I realized that a lot of you know how badass you feel as a player and how enjoyable it is has a lot to do with how it feels to use the weapons that help you solve the problems in the game. If if they feel good to use, and if it feels good when you use them or blow something up, then that's that's something that's really important. So I tried to make sure I focused a lot of effort into making sure that the sound, you know, sounded okay and that everything looked okay. I, I wanted to feel like you were uh, using guns that, you know, were reasonably cool and that when you got an upgrade and you paid for it, you felt like, yeah, I really did get an upgrade. I wanted to feel that way too, even if, you know, they, they can always look at the meters in the upgrade system and say objectively, yes, okay, I have X more firing power. You know, I can fire a little bit faster or what have you. But the player has to feel that. And I, I did put a lot of effort into trying to make sure that, you know, the guns and the missiles did provide that little bit of extra subtle oomph in the player's eyes. They definitely did. I thought you did a great job just from like, you could, ju- you could totally tell like moving from the first gun to the second gun, like, wow, this gun has more oomph. Oh, it generates more heat. God damn it. Uh, <laughs> son of a gun. Yeah, that, that heat mechanic was... Uh, folks, if you're unaware, the game has a like a, a heat mechanic, so you can't like a lot of games do this, where like you can't shoot all the time. Your gun's gonna overheat, you know, uh, or you're gonna. I like what you do though. Your gun doesn't actually overheat, but you start taking power from your shields. Mm-hmm. I like yeah, that. absolutely. So the inspiration for that was sort of partly based on, I think it, I think it was. I'm trying to remember the game. It was uh, one of the. Uh, the Mech Warrior games. I think it was Mech Warrior Two. Um, I haven't played any of the other ones, but I remember playing Mech Warrior Two a long time ago. And I think this game was old, probably when I played it. Um, but um, You're when I when a I robot it up, guy, and you have not been keeping up with Mech Warrior. <laughs> yeah, I, I played Mech Warrior Four once or twice, I think. But um, but yeah, I, I tend to like really old games. We can talk more about that actually, because uh, I'm still a big fan of the original Star Wars Battlefront, and I play that all the time. But in Mech Warrior oh. Two, they had this really interesting thing where if you're and if if your uh, mech overheats from firing your guns too fast, your mech goes into like this thermal shutdown, and you have to start your mech up again. Which so you have to be yes. really careful not to overheat. Mm-hmm. Yes. I felt that was a pretty harsh penalty to impose on the players. You know, you're drifting in space, and suddenly your spaceship shuts down. Okay, that doesn't really make make much sense. But I had to provide a disincentive um, for overheating, and that was if you begin to overheat, it sucks power from your shields, and so you can get away with overheating for a short period of time if you really want to fire your guns and, and boost really quickly. Um, but if you do it too much, you will pay for it. Yeah. So one of the older podcasts, I'll, I'll have to figure out what number it was, um, but it's the one where we had the guys from Impeller Studios on, and that's uh, Jack Mamace from Mac Order 2 and uh, David Westman that made TIE Fighter. We're t- they're together making a space game right now. And uh, 
yeah, having those two powerhouses in the room was something. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. Wow. Yeah. So, so you like so you play Star Wars Battlefront a lot. You said is that people people are still playing that? I have no idea if they're playing it online, but I like to make mods for it just to play around with some really weird things. Uh, you know, just like ridiculous oh. top weapons or things like that. And I don't play it that much anymore, but um, it's definitely up there in, in some of my top favorite games to play just because uh, the, the modding tools are, uh, they're okay. Um, but uh, I remember again, the game was old and it was discounted when I bought it, but I just, something about old games seems very sincere in a way that some newer games don't. I'm, I'm having trouble quantifying that, but it, oh, it doesn't no, truly totally, to me. I totally agree. Like, I feel like the 90s especially were just such a golden age of game design and development. And Absolutely, yeah. If, even though we have so many games now, I don't think quality-wise we have matched the stuff that came out in the 90s, to be honest. I've been late to the... You came late to the party on MechWarrior 2, though. You didn't get to experience the glory that was NetMech. Oh, <laughs> no, Net I guess Mech. not. <laughs> yeah, they they, they uh, figured out how to get MechWarrior 2 to play multiplayer online. Oh, the lag man. Was, the lag was real. Like, you yeah. had to shoot about an inch in front of it the was, other guy. <laughs> it was pretty oh, yeah. bad. Wow. It was pretty bad. Like, that and, like, X-Wing versus TIE Fighter especially were, like, really ahead of their time. Like, if they had come out today with our fast with our fast internet, they would have been amazing. But in the area of either dial up or really early like DSL, yeah, yeah not I, I so, remember not so much. Play, I, I remember trying to play XVT on a fifty six k. No, 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 <laughs> no. You no. I mean, God bless them for trying, but. Yeah, no. That was, that was no, a land party game only. Absolutely, right, yeah. absolutely. But uh, but now you know, and, and you can still play NetMech though, can't you? Yeah, I'm sure there's some people out there that love that pain that are still doing it. But I'm sure without the lag, it's probably great. <laughs> yeah. Oh, by the way, speaking of that, I found a Discord channel. There's people trying to get a MechWarrior Four community on Game Ranger going again. Oh, like okay. A whole Discord full of people. You will have to share that somewhere uh, on the on our Discord, because folks, we all love Mech Warrior Four. Oh, we're all a bunch of you know mech heads, pretty much. We love space games, yes, but you know, there's a lot of cross pollination with space games and mech games. So, so, uh, so yeah, we love our mech games. I just wish someone would make a Mission Force Cyberstorm reboot. Or just a, or or a HD version. That's really all I want. <laughs> in in all this world, that is really all I want. <laughs> BattleTech came pretty close though. <laughs> pretty close. <laughs> all right. So uh, one thing I like about your uh, about Hypergate is the lighting. Like we talked about the explosions, but I also like how the light changes and dances across your cockpit. Like, how many iterations of this engine did you go through to get it, like, right? To get it feeling yeah. the way it feels right now? That's a, that's a really great question. So the engine was uh, core mechanics, like the ships coming through the gate and things like that. The, the basic core mechanics were more or less present within after about the first year of development. But as the engine started to mature and as the project started to mature as a whole... <clears throat> 
Um, I realized I wanted to add a little bit more realism that would make it seem a little bit more immersive. So that includes when a giant laser bolt goes flying by, it actually lights up your cockpit a little. Um, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what point I actually implemented that, but the iteration was, or the, uh, the engine was more or less in a constant state of iteration, um, almost until I want to say the last several months of development, probably just because I, I constantly found room to improve things. And I said, you know, it'd be really cool if we could add this, we could add that. Uh, recently in a support update, I added the ability for the windshield to crack and it distorts your view if you take too much damage. And again, it's just a bunch of little, little things that I just kept adding on in order to increase maybe realism isn't the right word, but definitely the level of immersion that the player was experienced that I thought would really help. And I had to choose those features carefully because you can add a lot of those things up, but then they affect the performance of the game. But one of my goals was accessibility uh, to folks who might have underpowered hardware or, you know, just older machines in general. Okay. So one thing about your immersion that, that blew my mind and I still cannot figure out why this is there. Why does my ship have windshield wipers? <laughs> I told you me. I told you meteor showers. Oh, okay. Because I thought I figured maybe I like flew through some space bugs or something. And had... no, that's a really great question. That was kind of a tongue-in-cheek response of mine to some feedback that I had received that indicated that the cockpit was too static. So, um, so what I did is I added a moving joystick. I added a cracking windshield effect. And then just because I couldn't really help myself, I added windshield wipers. That way, when people complain the cockpit was too static, I could say, what are you talking about? You press the Q key on your keyboard and the windshield wipers go by. Yeah. Uh, in, in fact, you could do that one better by putting like a little plastic hula girl up there. Would... <laughs> I, I thought about something <laughs> dancing on the uh, on the cockpit or something like that, like on, on the dashboard head, or something. But I decided to go with windshield head, wipers. Yeah. yeah, that would have been good. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah, speaking of accessibility... Um, all we, the three of us have apparently played this game with different controls. Uh, Spaz, you used the controller. Um, I did indeed. Jim, you used a mouse, uh, the mouse and keyboard. And I used my trusty Microsoft Sidewinder Force Feedback 2 joystick. And I apparently, even with these different controls, the game played pretty well. Like... How much testing did you do? Because the controls are one of the most important part, like the feeling, the the feeling of the controls, the feeling of the flight. The how much testing went into making the controls feel as right as they do? A lot of testing. So one of the things I learned. So Hypergate is not my first game on Steam. The first one was a smaller game oh. called Asteroids Millennium, and it was sort of a a very small modern remake of of the classic Asteroids. You know, with some uh, interesting new mechanics added onto it. And I learned very quickly from interacting with the players of that game that learning how to, uh, or that figuring out, how do I say this? People really want to be able to control the game in their way. Um, maybe this is because they prefer a particular input style or a particular play style. And I realize that one of the things that is very important, and if you look at some criticisms of of games, you know, or look at negative reviews on Steam or things like that, I've spent a lot of time looking at negative reviews trying to figure out um, what are some things that I really should be cognizant of when I'm developing, is that input controls are very, very important. Some people will prefer keyboard. You'll have someone who prefers to use, you know, you know, possibly what everyone else would consider to be the worst input scheme, but, you know, they just really like it and that's how they want to play it. Um, you know, so I wanted to have uh, keyboard and joystick for sure. The mouse support didn't come out until uh, slightly after the release date of Hypergate, just because um, unfortunately that particular feature fell by the wayside because I had to finish the LAN play before the release date. So the mouse support wasn't initially there until a little bit afterwards. 
Um, but I, w- I was very surprised because um, I was watching someone do a playthrough of my first game called Asteroids Millennium um, on YouTube. And this was um, an individual with some uh, physical inhibitions, but he managed to map all of the uh, controls of the game onto his mouse and he could play uh, without his hands just because he had all of the, uh, he was able to move his mouse with his head and he was able to play and push wow. the buttons and, and, and played really well. And so that was a very important thing for me to learn that input experience for players, you know, you can't really, <laughs> you might want to say something like, no one's going to bother using that input scheme or that's not going to work or no one would ever do this. But the truth is they probably will. And you should take that into consideration when you're developing the input schemes for your game and that it should feel good no matter how they're controlling their spaceship or what have you. And, and you definitely succeeded there. And I have to admit, I I think I've seen Asteroids Millennium before because it was on my wish list, but I I probably forgot about it or something. I'm sorry. <laughs> There's so many games, man. There's so oh, many yeah, games. No, I understand. And I realize that the uh, the audience for something like an Asteroids remake is probably very, very small. So that's uh, <laughs> no worries. I, I got to say, though, every review is positive. That's, I that's, haven't actually. I haven't actually checked. Are you referring to Asteroids Millennium? I haven't checked. Yeah, in a while, actually. Yeah, yeah. Okay, there's, 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 there's se- I'll have to. The, yeah, there are only seven reviews, uh, so they're yeah, not a lot. Yeah. But uh, yeah, everyone is positive. I'll have to take a look and pat myself on the back then, or something. I guess I don't know. <laughs> no, that's really great because even with games that only have a few reviews, there's always one negative one. You know, <laughs> I, I thought there was actually a negative review there. Uh, maybe, maybe it's since been removed. Like I said, I haven't checked in a while. But I found that a good indication for how people feel about the control schemes or the playability of the games is indicated in the Steam forums. If you go there, it's sort of like the, you know the hidden repository of all every single issue everyone has with the games. So you can learn a lot by browsing through forums of of you know any type of game to see what people's beefs are. And I've done that too to try to figure out what sort of things I should be aware of as I do my own development. Yeah, I, I gotta say, uh, some people hate Steam forums um but i I, th- I think they're i think they can be a tremendous resource for learning about a game yeah absolutely you know? so, I, so i prefer to think of it as a tool rather than a medium for someone to bash my game you know uh so i i try to see it for what it is and, and try to get something useful out of that so yeah and then there are people in your forum talking about the controls and you seem to have dealt with all of their issues well done <laughs> <laughs> I, I really, I really try to make everybody happy because uh, I've, I'm, I'm sure we've all been on the receiving end of this, where you buy a game and you're really excited to play it. Maybe you don't know why you're excited, but all you know is you just really want to give it a try, and then it turns out it doesn't support your favorite controller, or the uh, control input type is limited, or there's something fundamental that's not gameplay related that prevents you from really enjoying or even playing the game and that, that's a really awful experience and i'm sure oh, that yeah. some games get really awful you know just impulse negative reviews because of that and uh you know I, I suppose that can't really be helped but the best thing you can do is you know listen to the players who buy your game um because they have their preferences and they're fully justified in them and uh you know try to help them out and uh, uh just you know be friendly and, and show them that you care you know like uh I in when I'm developing Hypergate and I was working on it and and when I come up coming up with my ideas now I'm building a world for these players to enjoy and I can't really justify not letting someone enjoy the world they should be just because I was too lazy to not implement a particular contro- uh, particular control scheme or some sort of preference that would allow them to experience the world as I intend them to experience do you know what I'm saying Oh oh that's wonderful no that's a, that's absolutely as it should be that is great like you, you brought up this problem where you got a game and you're excited to try it. I um, was reminded of a game I owned 
um, the other day, and so I reloaded it. I hadn't played it in a while, and uh, I tried changing the controls, and this apparently has been de- – I won't say which game it was, but it apparently had been abandoned by its developer because like every t- – because you can set like pitch, y'all, roll, all that stuff. But in the mm-hmm. menu, any whatever I clicked on, it would always show pitch every time. And it's like, so I can't change the roll. I can't change the yawn. This is so sad. I want to mm, play this right. I definitely learned that people, when I originally did the very, very first test, play test for Hypergate, uh, when I think I only had a couple missions available, or maybe it was just a custom mission that I developed, just that I just built off of existing assets that I already had. Um, what happened was I designed the game to be played very much like an airplane. So you actually could only pitch up so high, you couldn't flip over and things like that. So people became very confused by that mechanic. So I, I gave them a little bit more motion. And then when I released the game, people were saying, well, we want more free roll. We want to be able to do all these other extra things and turn off the auto leveling, which is a totally, totally valid point. And if that's how they want to play the game, you know, they can do that. That doesn't really screw around or mess up the mechanics of the game as I intended it to be played. And those are, those are facilities that are easily added. And so uh, I wanted to make sure that I provided that kind of freedom too. Because again, if you check the Hypergate forums, you'll see that people are requesting that particular feature. Um, so I put it in there because it's compatible with the game, the way it's meant to be experienced. And, you know, why not? So Was that hard to implement? Or because it's your own engine, it wasn't, it wasn't really difficult at all to implement? Like how um, I did not design the game to have free roll implemented, but all I had to do was just add another rolling axis and then just disable the auto leveling. That's literally all that little checkbox does in the controls. So fortunately, I had implemented it in such a way that it was easy to make that change. Wow. See, I, it's it's kind of amazing when you make your own engine. Like it's it like because some of the games we a lot a lot of developers we talk to either use Unity. Or they use um, Unreal, and you know it's fine, you know. But like some of the games we played, where the developer took the time to make their own engine, has been just super impressive. It's know? it's definitely I can see that people would definitely have their passion projects to do that. If I if my goal was to pump out games really quickly and uh, uh, and you know put them on Steam, you know, sure, would I use Unity or Unreal? Absolutely, but. <laughs> in addition to doing that, I would also be developing engines from scratch because I love that so much. So um, it, this is kind of a nice intersection of being able to share this world that I've developed with everybody else while at the same time developing it from the ground up the way that I like to do it. So, you know, it's kind of a kind of a win-win scenario, I guess. Are you going to maybe license out your engine to other people or is it just for you? It's mainly just for me. Like I said, with some of my tools a little bit earlier, Similar story for the engine. I feel some people would probably get frustrated with some of the idiosyncrasies. It's not a perfect, it's not a complete engine. And the only thing it can really, it's not, it's certainly not a general purpose engine by any stretch of the imagination. It's really only meant for hypergate type games. Right. Um, so to be honest, I don't, I can't imagine that the level of interest in it would be super high. If it turns out that there is, um, it's something I might consider, but um, no one's really brought it up uh, up till now. Right. So you wouldn't say, try to add a first-person shooter to this uh, space game engine, for example, you know, or no. so, add, add something that doesn't belong in the engine, <laughs> like, like some <laughs> yeah, other games be have been, like some other games have been doing. Yeah, Star, yeah. Star Citizen. One of the, uh, mm. It's funny, so when I had another playtest session uh, with some friends uh, quite a while ago, 
Um, the game was single player at this time. And so there was no LAN functionality whatsoever. And they're like, you know what, Jeff, if you're going to release this, you should really, there's really no excuse for not having multiplayer or LAN or something where people can play together because this is the right kind of game to do that with. And I, I kind of hemmed and I hawed, but I realized that, you know, they're probably right as usual. So I spent a lot of time adding LAN functionality, but since, since the engine wasn't built specifically to do that, I had to rewrite a lot of facilities in order to accommodate that. So just because that was uh, about halfway through Hypergate's development, I realized that that's what I wanted to do. So I had to go back and I had to re-implement a few things in order to sort of fundamentally, in a core sort of way from the ground up, support LAN multiplayer gameplay. And that, that, that was a little bit tough, but uh, you know I learned my lesson. So when I work on another project in the future, uh, now I sort of know what I'm doing. <laughs> Is there any possibility of maybe um, like Steamworks or online land? I mean, online uh, play because uh, potentially. Oh, okay, great. <clears throat> so right now there is an awful lot going on um, in you, you. I mean, the the scale of the battles that you can create in Hypergate oh, yeah. in the instant action mode is pretty huge. So at this time, um, the level of optimization that I've applied at this time is probably only appropriate for land play. Um, just because the sheer amount of information that's going, you know, through, through the pipes, uh, so to speak. <laughs> but, uh, if, if a full online multiplayer were to be implemented, um, it would require some more optimizations. That's fair. Yeah. But, uh, I, I agree with you that that would be a really awesome feature to have. And, uh, if, again, if there's a demand, that's something that I would, uh, seriously consider adding well it's kind of a shame we uh used to have access to this service called evolve which was a virtual land it would basically emulate a land over the internet and it was amazing um so if we had access to that today i would totally want to try it but we don't because <laughs> it's it's gone it's so sad um <laughs> But i would love to try this multiplayer but i don't have a friend with a LAN over here <laughs> <laughs> does it do split screen like single machine multiplayer uh no no it doesn't oh that might be something to think about adding then for some the like nice thing games. is from a technical perspective that wouldn't be too bad because the oh. sort of the computational slash graphical demands are not so extreme that you know a modern computer um should be able to run you know a split screen you know rendering twice the amount of information no problem so that that's something that i feel would be certainly technically feasible Oh, you should totally do that if you can. That would be cool. that would be great. I have a notebook here. I'm I'm taking notes. So. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> no, because because hot seat stuff like that could be really fun with the right people. Yeah, absolutely. So I didn't really get a chance to uh, to- toy much with the uh, instant action stuff. How 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 many options are are in there? Like, how much can you create with the instant action mode? Right, so the layout is pretty much fixed. So the uh, you, you can start with anywhere between two and five fleets of varying sizes. You can choose whether or not each fleet has uh, gate support, initial fighter support, cruiser support. Um, you can select the size of the fleet. I might have mentioned that, and um, and the, uh, the 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 skill of the fleet, like in terms of the AI difficulty. Um, you can also have up to um, um, each. You can set your team colors, your your team colors that you play on. Uh, sort of arbitrarily, uh, so you can have very small battles. You can have huge ones that'll probably take you an hour to get through. And is it all just shoot everything, or are there are there different modes like capture the flag or whatever? I don't know. I'm just 
pulling crap out my butt, but <laughs> no, that's a great question. Currently, uh, it's just shoot everything up. You can keep, the nice thing is, is you can actually keep respawning while you have cruisers and gates available. So unlike the missions, which restart, you can die as many times as you like in the instant action, as long as you have reinforcements available. Um, so you can, you can keep doling out the damage and don't have to worry about dying and suddenly everything resetting. And does that eat away at your, re, as your, at your reinforcement pool or is it just an infinite uh, pool? No, no, it doesn't. So you can respawn as many times as you want, but you will accumulate um, the the stats for the game are tracked. So you it tracks your number of kills and it tracks your number of deaths. Uh, oh. But I definitely didn't want to penalize the player for dying in this insanely huge space battle. Um, and also, I in terms of since you can also play instant action over LAN, I definitely didn't want to have players you know through some freak accident end up dying and you know totally running out of lives. You know, for example, in the first yeah. ten minutes of the battle when there's still fifty minutes left to go and then suddenly there are just people sitting at their keyboards so uh, you know just waiting for the game to end so i definitely thought it would be better just to allow unlimited respawn and you can just sort of keep playing until your brains is out of your ears <laughs> oh man it's such a shame we don't have a virtual land thing anymore. i mean i guess we could try hamachi but uh, <laughs> i can't stand hamachi um it's just not user friendly at all um, but, but yeah, I didn't, I sadly didn't get a chance to try the instant action. Cause like I only had a, so much time in the campaign. I have to say <laughs> the campaign for, for how long it is, it's, it's kind of like a movie. It's like two and a half hours and it, it really gets a lot done. Like it's really efficient storytelling. That's, that's kind of what I was going for. So the original script that I wrote had a couple of missions that I, I ended up taking out because I felt they were really, really repetitive or, or, or too similar to the existing missions. For example, the one with the, uh, uh, one of the ones uh, near the middle point where uh, that commander goes rogue with that fleet, um, that sort of changed things up for me. That was actually a late addition. Initially, I think there was another marauder attack that you were going to repel, but I, I wrote that out because I said, you know, this is too repetitive. They've done this before. Let's do something more interesting. Hey, wait a second. What's an enemy we've never played against? Ourselves. So I made this fleet defect and then you get to fight against this uh, really powerful fleet, actually, just because you're, you're you're fighting against the same technology that you use, and it provided a, a unique challenge. So there, there were some additions and changes to the script a little bit further on in the development process that deviated from the original script, but um, I, I definitely wanted to make sure that things were... I wanted to avoid having sort of filler, if you want to look at it that way. So I tried to make sure that everything everything told a story, um, even if it was just a little bit of story or, or a little bit of something interesting happening in every mission. No, I appreciate that. It reminds me. It reminds me of like a British TV show, like how <laughs> like like a British TV show is anywhere from six to ten, sometimes twelve episodes, thirteen episodes, but because they have fewer episodes, you know, they're very tight. You know, right. there's not yeah. there's not a lot of filler. There's not a lot of guff. It's just you know exactly what you well depends on the show, I guess. Because <laughs> this latest yeah, season of I, Doctor um, Who, wow. Sorry, go ahead. No, it's quite right. Um, and I I seem to have forgotten what I was going to say. Oh, um, when I was developing the missions, um, deciding how long the campaign would be how long it would be was kind of a, a tough decision just because it kind of goes back to our previous discussion that yes, I had the time technically, if you want to think about it to write 30 missions instead of 10, but 
you and I would not be having this conversation if that were the case, because I would still be implementing them and building art assets and you know, <laughs> rendering planets and stuff like that. And, uh, and so we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. So, um, and this again, ties back into other elements uh, of our previous conversation, which is you got to set reasonable goals for yourself. So I, I picked a goal for the campaign that I felt was reasonable and doable with the resources and the voice acting talent that I had at, at hand. Um, and just realized that if I wanted to add more, I could leave the door open to, uh, to add additional content, but this was a, a really good sort of goal in terms of making a self-contained game that would, you know, be, be playable in a, a, a reasonable amount of time. And I, I gotta say for, as someone who has a limited amount of time, it's like, it was actually really nice because I rarely finish games. Like very rarely I finish anything. So it was actually kind of nice to like finish something that was so efficiently told. Like I think the game, the only other the game I finished before this was probably Titanfall two. It's, it's oh wow! Just been, it's just been that long. <laughs> <laughs> but that was again. I don't know if you played Titanfall two, but that's another very efficient uh, story story um, campaign. Uh, the campaign there is maybe six or seven hours. Oh okay, yeah. It gets and a there, lot. there are some gamers out there who might consider that to be a very short game. In fact, I remember. You can you can go always take a look at the reviews on Steam for certain games and they say what this campaign is only five or six hours long and well okay you know it depends on what you're paying for it type thing but yeah but uh, well, yeah I, I, I definitely didn't shoot for anything that long. It's obnoxious whenever they're like, well the game has to be longer, so we put a bunch of tedious filler in yeah. as opposed to actually just moving the story along. I mean if there's yeah. like twenty hours of story there, that's cool. Mm-hmm. But if if it's like five hours of story interspersed with four hour chunks of flying around in a circle, no, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly, or or ten hours of story and twenty hours of grinding, that's <laughs> that's kind of odious. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with you there. Exactly, like Titanfall two. Going back to that, like it had a seven, six seven hour story and it told it very efficiently. I didn't feel like I wasted my money. You know, I didn't feel it needed to be longer. It was the perfect length for that game. So, like, yeah, I don't, I like, but we've all played games where it's like, there's only four hours of story here. You sent me on 80 fetch quests to pad this <laughs> crap out, you bastards. <laughs> yeah, people define their gaming experiences differently. Some people are in it for the stories, some people are in it for the action. So, it, it really is tough to sort of judge what is the uh, desired, you know, sort of ratio between the two sometimes. <laughs> But I have to say, given how much there's content, no magic number, though, there really isn't. <laughs> right, right. But 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 people do like equate in a lot of ways. They equate the length of a game, like, as value, and then they see what people are charging for that, and they're like, "What?" But so I was gonna say, I think your game is what twelve dollars, which yep. is, I think, a great price. That is like just a real sweet spot for this game. Like if you charge twenty, I'd be like, I don't know, but twelve. Yeah, it's yes, good impulse it's, buy territory. Yeah, and, exactly, and and still good value for you know how many hours you're going to put into it, plus how uh, the potential for more content coming down the pipe. Exactly. So you'll return to it after you know a couple months or however long it is before the the next set of stuff is out. Yeah, and replayability definitely plays a factor in there too, which is why the instant action is there. That's why the land play is there. Uh, the upgrades give you a sort of a level of uh, replayability uh, there as well. Uh, I, I took a look a lot of, at a lot of space games. I, I didn't I didn't play any of them, but I I mean 
sorry, let me rephrase that. I didn't make any Steam purchases of space games in order to take a look, in order to figure this out, but I definitely took a look at a bunch of space games on Steam to try to figure out, okay, what are the price points? How much are they offering? You know, how long does the game play for? What do the reviews look like? So I did spend a lot of time trying to come up with and, you know, I, I suppose this is something any developer should do. So I guess it's not that miraculous, but <laughs> um, I did put, you know, some time into figuring out, you know, what should this sell for? And I also spoke with uh, the beta testers as, as well, who um, uh, who, who have uh, played a lot of games on Steam to try to figure out what a good a good number would be. Uh, well, you say it's not miraculous, but how many games do we see that are like four hour games that are $40 or, you know, like like. Steam is such a freaking wild west of <laughs> even though it's as old as it is now it's what at least a decade old or a little older it still feels like a wild west of trying to figure out you know how much should I charge for this how long should this game be should I separate out this out into DLCs it it's mm-hmm. it's such a it's such a mess Steam is such a Yeah I've been mess. I've been told in general that you know there are customers at at every price point, but it, it it is a little bit tricky to sort of uh, to sort of to sort of get it right, and it's it's easy to get it wrong. You oh, do God. really want to charge based on you know you put I put you know my sweat and my blood and my tears into this game you know during my free time for the last five years, and yes, it's fun, but damn it, I want to make sixty dollars a game. You know, no, it's it's you, you can't think like that. You can't think you know you can't think of it in terms of the you can't measure the price in terms of the passion that you put into it. You know, you need to you need to think about it very objectively in terms of what the user is getting, what they think they're getting for their money, things like that. So it's um, you have to think about it very dispassionately. And that's, I think that's hard for a lot of developers. Cause like you said, my blood, my sweat, my lack of sleep, <laughs> and that's, you know, completely understandable. You know, I mean, we, we love all the developers we talk to and all the developers that make space games, but it's so hard to fall down that rabbit hole of this is my life. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and, and it's kind of strange. I was just going to mention it was kind of just kind of strange that there are some people who will look at a game and if it's under ten dollars, they might say, "Oh, that looks like a thirty-hour game. It's under ten dollars. What's wrong with it? Why right. is it being priced so low?" And and you can't please everybody, and in some cases, you can't please them at all, just because no matter what you price it at, they're going to either find something wrong with the price oh this is too much i'm going to wait for a sale or it's too cheap i don't think it's valuable <laughs> yeah absolutely so you kind of got to balance it between taking your work seriously or, or how do i say between you know not you need to think very dispassionately about it but you also need to take your project seriously enough to you know give it a, a, a reasonable price and, and you know really sort of objectively right. figure out what it's worth and that that is a real challenge yeah i agree with you 100 percent Spaz, I'm going to be honest with you. I I do that. I'll 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 be looking at Steam games. I'm like, that's a dollar. It's got to be an asset flip, or or, <laughs> you know, or that's that's seventy nine cents. It's a former. It's a mobile port. Why would I want to spend ninety nine cents on a game? But if you see something that's like six nine nine. Oh, what is this? This has some value somewhere. Eight ninety nine. Really. You know? It it makes no sense when you yeah. think about it. It makes no sense. But I do that every day. I every day I look at the the newly released lists on what is Steam and and on Steam itself. I'm like, 
crap, 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 you know, 99 cents, crap, 99 cents, crap. Seven ninety nine. What is this? <laughs> and unless you have a recommendation from someone you trust, you're going to pass over that game and completely miss it because you you just 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 impulse thinking. Well, okay, that can't yeah. be worth it. That can't be worth it. What they're asking for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a really weird time to be a gamer. <laughs> It's a really, it's a great time, but it's a weird time, and 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 how how do you find it on your end as a developer? I mean, you're doing this part time, so thankfully your livelihood is not completely tied up in this. <laughs> no, um, this is very much just a part time hobby for fun. I, I I just enjoy doing it. Yeah, I sometimes worry about people who do try and jump into this full time. Like, Oh, uh, that's okay. Good luck with that. Uh, Cause it's terrifying. <laughs> well, I, I I'm really, sure. I, I can't speak for them, but, uh, um, my goal is to get into academia. So, uh, I, I have other plans, you know, if, uh, oh. doesn't make a billion jillion dollars. So, uh, <laughs> oh, that's interesting. There's only 30,000 games on steam. What's the competition about? Yeah. And, and I think half so. of the, half of them came out last year. So by the, no, by the, end, the last two years. Yeah, but like <laughs> the, the end of this two year, years. Yeah, the end of this year, there'll be forty thousand games on Steam because there's like a yeah, hundred or yeah. so every freaking day. But it's interesting. I don't think we've talked to either many people or anyone who where game development is not their final. You know, not not their final calling, not the final thing they want to do. That's. Like, like just about. I think every developer we talk to, like, that's it. That's what they want to do. Like, that's the goal. But that's not your goal. No, I, I, uh, I did consider getting into game dev um, many years ago, probably about halfway through my undergrad. Um, but I thought about it a lot, and uh, and I, I had a lot of discussions with a lot of people. And just based on my interests in uh, in in teaching and research, uh, uh, both of which I've done now at this point, and I realized that being a prof, getting into academia would probably be uh, something I would really, really enjoy because I enjoy all the parts that make up that particular career. Uh, so that would be a lot of fun, I think, for me. Um, but game dev uh, is and always will be, uh, you know, just a, a really passionate hobby of mine that is how i prefer to spend my free time you know not i mean don't get me wrong i watch tvs i play games you know and stuff like that but you know uh 90 of the time when i have some free time it's like great i can work on an exciting project now i can build another game or add content to my existing ones things like that and so um that's that's just something i really love doing on the side so you could kind of gamify the the academia though right like you build (laughs) robot games We've made a lot of jokes about that, about grad students avoiding their professors and things like that, and how we gamify that. That's come up a lot in the lab where I work. <laughs> well, you know, it's like have you have you ever played uh, like C robots? Uh, uh, no, I haven't. Oh, okay. Uh, write that one down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so you need to look for that. Um, it's basically it's robot programming with C. So oh, okay. it's a way you know, like teach yourself C, and you make little robots that run around. Um, and there was an old game. Uh, that Origin made back in the 90s, and it was called Omega, and it was a robot tank game. So you would write a program for you, because you would start with simple parts, right? And then you write a program for a tank. So it's it's like sweep the sensor, you know, 360 degrees, and did you detect a target? Yeah. If, if so, take the angle of the target, turn to face that way, 
you know, shoot the gun kind of thing. I've seen similar things that were like a drag and drop type interface. Um, there's a, uh, uh, I think it's, I think it's one of the universities in Brisbane. They have this uh, really, really huge display. Um, I, f- I forget the name of the university and I feel bad because I shouldn't because <laughs> one of my colleagues went there, but um, it just escapes me at the moment. Um, but they have this huge um, sort of two TV screens that cover an entire like two story wall. And down at the bottom there are these touchscreen interfaces where you do something very similar, where you drag and drop all the different commands for the robots and they all work interactively on these big screens in this big simulated space to clean up trash. It's uh, a really interesting sort of thing. So I, I, I've, I've definitely seen something similar to that. So I think I can envision what you're describing. Okay. Yeah, so there's uh there's a market for this sort of thing. Like mm-hmm. um have have you okay, so you like old games, right? XCOM? Have you yeah, played it? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I haven't played so, I haven't played XCOM, no. Okay. So XCOM was human soldiers versus aliens. It's a turn based tactical thing. It's it's basically think like SWAT team versus aliens that jumped out of a UFO. So cool. you have to hunt the aliens down in the dark at the farm, right? And capture their UFO and stuff. It gets a lot weirder and deeper than that, but that's like the early levels, right? You're just running around chasing little gray dudes with big heads that shoot at you. Um, but I see, I see a window of opportunity for like, well, what if that was programmable, right? Where, where uh. you would actually, you'd have to, you know, okay, I have to program. It's like, let's play chess, but I have to program my chess pieces three moves ahead. Like there's some board games like that. I think. Yeah, there, there's what? What's the one board game Spaz? That's uh, it's the robot programming thing. You've uh, talked about it before. Oh, uh, oh, the name escapes me, but I know we've talked about it. Uh, there's a more modern one though, called Cold Express, which uses cards, some of which are placed face up or face down, in order to program all the moves for the round by all the players. And depending on what phase of the turn you're in, you may have to place your card face up or face down. And then at the end of the round, all of those moves happen in in reverse sequence. So you might say, oh, I'm going to move myself to the right and then shoot to the left. But there may not be anyone there by the time your turn comes up to shoot. Yeah. It's it's programming, but it's it's programming against other players and then their own moves also come into the the chaos of it all yeah so i've i've just thought you know there's there's not a lot of uh of programming kind of titles that and a lot of it yes it's turned to drag and drop but is that what we really want to teach kids or do we want to actually have them write a script that gets executed and it's like my script fights your script and let's throw them in an arena and the multiplayer that just works because i upload my script you upload yours they get run on the same computer. It's all hands off anyway. And then we find out who wins and we get to watch the replay kind of thing. So that, that's I, I definitely... see that as a competitive. Um, other thing about robotics, because there is there are actually a couple of robotics games that are on Steam that also involve the, uh, the physicality of robots. So it, it's uh, I forget what it's called, but it, but it's actually like it. By by the time you get into it, you're playing with uh, with sensors and like NAND gates and stuff on a breadboard, and you know, and and it's like ah oh, yeah okay this is like when I went to college and you know many eons ago, um, where you're actually doing logic with circuit boards and trying to program a robot, and that like the simple robot that they start you with is it's got two sensors. 
and it'll detect a black line, right? So you put one sensor on either side of a line and it's got, you know, it's, it's uh, basically a robot car, right? It's a turtle. And then if one of the sensors lights, that means it's so you activate the other wheel and, you know, so you can make a, a little mouse that'll follow a line that you draw kind of thing. And then they give you puzzles to solve like, okay, make a robot that can navigate this room. And you actually have to like code this stuff with a circuit board and throw it on the floor and see what it does, you know, and, and there's a lot of trial and error stuff, but that, that got me to thinking. And since you're a robotics guy, I, I got to throw this out there. And I, and I see there's uh like gazebo, is mm. one robotics simulator, but that looks like more industrial robots kind mm, of thing. Yeah. Um, but so much effort goes into let's make a humanoid robot. Let's make this thing that can walk, right? Like if you look at MIT and they've done some scary shit with those dog things, <laughs> right? <laughs> that that's creepy. God uh, damn it, Carl. God, yeah. Yeah. We yeah it's, like, <laughs> it's like, God bless you for making that creepy ass shit. But um, it, it seems like the majority of the effort goes into the locomotion of it, right? And it's not so much the, it, it, okay, so let's say, poof, I've made it magically. There's a robot that absolutely perfectly can walk and, and it has sensors like eyes, right? But you still don't have a brain for that thing, right? So what I'm wondering is, as far as once once you actually get your servos to do what they what they do and you can have the thing balance and it can manipulate things great now you got to program behavior so the behavior seems to be the part that is seriously lacking mm-hmm. right yeah. because because so much effort and and honestly that physical stuff is hella expensive right because yep. oh, yeah. you know you gotta yeah so can we skip the money let's make a virtual environment for a virtual robot to be in and it gives back the actual sensor data simulated that the real world sensors would generate, but we simulate that. And then you can write your code for robot behavior based on real sensor feedback, but you do it in a virtual environment and you can get really, really good at that. And you can iterate over, you know, like what if technology, right? It's like, well, we don't have a, we don't have a robot that can physically do this yet, but if it could, let's work on the brain for it because we can fake it in the VR. Right. Mm. And I'm just wondering like, why, why don't we see more of that stuff going on? Well, because every time like, okay, like you turn on the, the news, right. And you see like, they've made this super cool robot, right. It, it, like that, uh, that thing that they take around to conventions and they show off. Right. And it's the, the robot with the human female face and, you know, the, the robot that wanted to put all humans in a zoo kind of thing. And it, I look at that and it's like, this is great. You know, that's a cool PR trick for like the, the masses of computer illiterate people. But when you actually look at it, that's, it's running Eliza from, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and, and it's just like, there is nothing fascinating about that other than they got Eliza that can lip sync now and it's got a vocoder in it. So, eh, you know, so it, so it's like, well, where is the actual behavior kind of thing? Because I've got like in, in my phone and I've got the Amazon thing in the house here. And, you know, and you, and you say, uh, I don't want to say its name cause it'll wake up. It's listening, but you know, but, but you're like, Hey, echo, uh, read my email. Right. And, or like on my phone, it's the worst. It's like, okay, Google read my email and it will actually open the email app silently. 
And it's like, no, no. I, I, I said, read my email because I know that your bitch ass can do text to speech. Right. <laughs> so do it. And, and it, it's just, it's too dumb, you know, and, and they have, and I would say, well, if they didn't own the entire ecosystem, if the, if the, the people that made the speech synthesis didn't also own the email program that also own the operating system, I would say, well, maybe there's an excuse for these things to not interoperate. And yet they do own all that stuff. So why is it that if I go to an Infocom text adventure game from what God, 40 years ago, I can actually give it a complete sentence and that game does better text parsing than what these like multi-million dollar systems do today. Right. So there's a lot of questions in what you just, just asked. So I was taking notes to see if I could answer as many of them as I can. I'll try to go in reverse order uh, just for uh, the sake of you know, remembering what was most recently asked. Um, so in terms of the uh, text interpretation and how the systems of yesteryear seem to really uh, do a good job of handling that, it's, it's, ma- it's mainly a problem of uh, the, the search space and the problem space is just very, very small in those types of, in those types of, uh, in types of programs. Um, the user doesn't actually have that many options and there aren't really that many things that can do. It's, it's much more closed and not as open-ended. You can't mm-hmm. just take the logic that might go into something like that kind of game and then try to scale it up into a real world, a real world scenario. It just, it just doesn't work. And people have tried that. Um, and it, it, it fails drastically, um, either because it just doesn't scale well or it's not computationally possible or, or feasible, I should say. Um, well, in that, do you, do you mean like there's too many intentions? So it's it's not that the vocabulary is too broad, right? Because I because I've seen intention tagging work before, mm-hmm. where you can say, okay, there's a hundred words that mean this one general idea. So mm-hmm. so if we if we parse this, we're going to tag this to an intention, right? Like right. read my email, read my mail, read my messages, right? It could be any. So so you have a verb noun, and if you can if you can boil it down to that, right? It's it's like okay, the verb is read, and the target is what. Right. So we figure out what that is. So mm-hmm. so there's a read and email. OK, I have an email app and read means. Right. So that kind of thing. Right. So so it's like, yes, you, you can't you can't just kind of free form it or whatever. But simple things like that, like functionality that is inherent to the device. If mm-hmm. I can't if I can't actually invoke intent like if I can't invoke functionality from the, the very specific purpose device that's in my hand, it seems goofy. Right. Because- so I agree with you a hundred percent. So it may not be a problem with them, with the system understanding your intentions. It could also be a sensing problem. So another big difference between the two cases that you presented here is that when you're entering text on a keyboard, it doesn't have to do any sort of, uh, uh, speech to text it it understands you know the vocabulary you've given it and it's it's very unambiguous in terms of what you've mm-hmm. typed and uh there might be sensing or there there are sensing difficulties associated with understanding verbal commands and then turning those into text commands that can okay. then be interpreted by the machine but think about that though right like <clears throat> if you play with the modern text or the modern speech to text because mm-hmm. they send that up to a cloud right like like if you if you run uh uh what do they call it it's uh, tiny Sphinx, I think, is what you can run like on a on a Raspberry Pi, mm-hmm. and and Sphinx actually does speech to text, and it does it pretty well. But if you get it to a cloud instance where you have like a billion samples to the you know where it's got machine learning and it's figured it out, mm-hmm. um, they they have like a ninety nine percent accuracy on that. So so if if we get the whole 
conversion out of the way. And let's just say I sit at a keyboard and I type a text command and let's make it really simple. Like it's noun verb. It doesn't even have to think about adjectives or anything, right? Right. Because they can boil it down to that. It's good. I've, I've seen them do it, Mm -hmm. but, but the actual connecting that noun verb intention to a behavior fails (laughs) because nobody, nobody, well, like my, my iPhone example, right? Where you, where you say like Siri, read my email. Well, when I would do that, I'm in the car, right? Or, or it's like, you know, I, I would like to have behaviors like tell me the subject of my most recent 10 emails, something like that. Right. Where, sure. it, where you could teach the user cause the user can learn much easier than the machine. So you teach the user, like if you just say, summarize my recent email, right? You give it that very specific command string. Then the thing could dip in and just pick the first 10 subject lines, read them out. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it's a, it's a thing that in that ecosystem, they fail to put that function there. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. Not, so and it's not a thing that I think would be of no convenience to anyone. Right. Yeah. That seems to be a thing that people do a lot. So it, it it's just, it, it's weird. Right. But, yeah. but then being able to do that kind of thing, and I guess where that comes from though is like they they try to wow me with this Eliza shit, but <laughs> they've 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 put that stuff that has been around for forty years, and it's not any more complex than that because it really doesn't need to be to make the impression that they're going for apparently because everybody's like gaga about that crap. Um, but they put that in a physical body that kind of looks creepy valley human. Right. Mm-hmm. And and then it's like, wow, look at the robots are here. No, they're not. <laughs> you know? It's like it's like you want to blow my mind. Show me like a cool new like Mars rover that can yeah, get around. You know? There is a dis- there's definitely a disconnect between what the media or consumers would think is impressive versus what scientists would think is impressive. Yeah. So absolutely. OK. So the, so the other thing was, was basically like the virtual environment thing where we can work on this brain without spending billions of dollars trying to figure out how to get it to walk around on two legs without falling over. Yep. That's, that's, that's always done. So we're, we're simulations are always going to be used to test those kinds of systems. There's some very complex, I haven't had experience with them, but, uh, I've, I've worked with robotic simulations before, and I'm sure that anyone who's working on any type of you know, non-trivial robot is building simulations, whether they're using gazebo or using some custom tool to simulate robot behaviors. Um, and so the thing is, when you're working in simulation, yes, uh, th- this is why AI for games can be a lot easier than building robots that do the same thing, because like you mentioned, when you're in simulation or a game, uh, on some levels they are the same, um, the robot does or can have access to perfect world data. Um, so taking behavior um, that leverages that fact in simulation and then transferring it to a robot in real life just doesn't work because there's always going to be a lot of um, imprecision and inaccuracy um, and noise in sensing in the real world. Right. And so well, you can't just take the algorithms that work in simulation and then stick it on a real robot. So you often will build the uncertainty and the noise into your physical models of the simulation and then put that on a real robot, for example. Okay. So I, yeah, I, I mean, I can see that it, it's just uh, like me as a, as a consumer, right. Where I would say, okay, I'm, I don't want to get into like high end academia, robotics simulation lab thing, but 
I think it would be kind of neat to screw around with some of this stuff, mm-hmm. but they don't seem to have anything. I mean, okay, so there there's like Lego Mindstorms mm-hmm. kind of stuff that's consumer targeted, but there but that's like low end, and then there doesn't seem to be like a cool mid range. And if I could have something like that in a simulation where it's like, hey, you know, if I actually went out and built and bought the parts to put this together, this is actually how I would program it. Because I'm not going to spend the money built buying hardware until I know that I can actually implement functionality with it. And that's what I got to make myself believe. Right. So right. if if that thing, if that toy was there to play with and and just be like, wow, OK, this this is cool, you know, because because like they uh, they have. Uh, like the R2-D2 toys that um, Sphero mm-hmm. made. Super cool, but not really programmable, right? right. So, so it's like, okay, the, the, you call it a robot, but it's actually a remote control toy because I just hit buttons and it reacts in real time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's there's no kind of procedural thing that's going on. Um, but if I had the ability to actually code that bad boy, I would own one right now because then it's like I can sit at my computer and puzzle out behaviors because I know what kind of sensor input I can get from it. And I could do some cool stuff that it doesn't come out of the box doing, but they don't mm-hmm. actually expose that to me because I get a stupid U or a stupid API on my phone that only responds to like 10 buttons. You know? <laughs> and yeah. So, so it's kind of like, I don't see this mid range consumer robot toy. And yeah, I, the thing that held great promise for me, and this, this is actually what launched that entire rant about God damn it. Why can't they make a thing that just reads my email when I fricking tell it to <laughs> is, uh, they, they had that, uh, Oh, what the hell is its name? Uh, uh damn it. That robot that they came out with, it was like a robot personal assistant, but it's, va- it's basically Siri in a, in a robot body. It's, okay. That's dumb. Right. <laughs> and, and it just, it just doesn't damn do anything. But what they said though is, Hey man, we're, this is all programmed in node in uh, node JavaScript mm-hmm. and people, we're going to have a store and people can write their own behaviors for it. So if you want to do that, you know, read my email thing, totally do it and then stick it in the store and then everybody's got it. And it's going to mm-hmm. be like this big open source free market for all this stuff. And uh, oh, Jibo—that was the name of the robot. J I B O. It was uh, okay. Boston, uh, wasn't was it Boston Dynamics? I think it was Boston Dynamics was cooking on that thing, and that was like their consumer consumery product. But the thing is, the the only difference between that thing and an, and an Alexa is that an Alexa is just a speaker that doesn't have an eyeball or a screen, which they fixed now. That act, they said they gave it a camera and, and <laughs> stuff, that, which makes it creepier. Yeah. <laughs> Because now the NSA is watching me shower or whatever. Um, <laughs> you keep your Alexa in the shower? No. But but it's just the it's just the thing, right? Like oh, like yeah. I didn't need I didn't need this perfect microphone that can hear me from clear across the house, mm-hmm. and now it's got an eyeball. Thanks, you know. Like I <laughs> like I trusted it more before. Um, but yeah, so it, it's that thing. So they made basically the same thing except that it has articulation in that it can tell the direction a sound came from and turn the camera to face the person. So it is the best video conferencing $600 toy that you, because if you want to video call somebody, it will follow you around the room while you're talking. It'll look mm-hmm. at you and stuff. And you can be like, take a picture and smile and it'll take, you know, um, that kind of crap. So as, as a thing for like grandma to talk to the grandkids, 
or whatever, and she's in the kitchen baking cookies and is like, hey, robot, call the grandkids, right? Beautiful for that. That's unfortunately the only practical application I can see for this $600 <laughs> piece of shit. Um, and, of course, that whole behavior ecosystem never really happened because everybody saw it and they were like, well, it's the same as the other dumb things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it didn't take off. Um, yeah. So, so what is going on in academia with robotics now? Like, oh, wow. um, what, what so- are we getting? Or are, are, are we going to, because like we've all seen the Boston dynamics stuff, right? The mule and the, and the, mm-hmm. the dog thing that's creepy as shit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the, one, <laughs> the one that most impressed me was, uh, the thing instead of having feet, it's got little wheels. It's like a barbecue. It's a robot barbecue. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I saw this thing. It almost kind of looks like a horse, the way they've got the front arms angled mm-hmm. out, and they're just counterweights, yeah. I guess. And But I watched that thing, like, jump up on a picnic table and then go outside and, like, bounce down some steps and then turn mm-hmm. around and it walked back up the steps. Because when you have a wheel, you can roll really fast until you need to walk. But, hey, you know what? Now I lock that wheel in place and I can walk on it like a foot. So it just walks back up steps and it's like, great, that's beautiful. Um, I looked at that and I thought that is the wheelchair of the future right there. Because <laughs> if you strap a person to that, yeah, they can be standing and, and, you know, like skate around or whatever. And if they need to go up steps, man, that bad boy just walks up the steps. Why is that not a wheelchair now? I don't know. So, so yeah, so tell me what what is going on academia because that's the things I've been exposed to, and then sure. I, I find fault in all of them. It's like okay, that's not enough yet. <laughs> no, of, of course not. Uh, so you know the media will tell you that the robot is about to take over, but uh, uh, that's not going to happen anytime soon. Uh, all of these things that you're mentioning, whether it's the locomotion or sensing problems or any of these things, these are all really huge problems. They're huge from an engineering perspective, from a computational perspective, um, and so. They, they're all their own active subfields of, of robotics, if you want to look at it that way. And there's there's so much work uh, that needs to be done there that putting all this stuff together, we're just not there yet. Uh, so one good example is there is um, uh, an international soccer robot competition called RoboCup. Um, and they have a lot of different <laughs> leagues of RoboCup. Right, so, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's, Did, clever, it's clever. Does anyone get shot in the dick? No, no one, no one gets shot, though, but... Uh, just give me my <laughs> fucking phone call. By robots. <laughs> And uh, there's different leagues in this um, that are dedicated to chac- to tackling very specific problems. Like there's one that deals specifically with uh, coordination between multiple wheeled robots, and there's various leagues for that. There are some robots that um, work with very small soccer balls that are size of a golf ball or real size soccer balls. So there's uh, differences in scale. There's also bipedal robots, um, and their focus is um, well, you know, 15 years ago these robots were falling over all the time, and any sort of hope of coordination between the robots just didn't exist. Uh, now, you know, we're getting walking down, and we can do that very well. So we're getting onto more advanced problems. But mm-hmm. the goal of RoboCup is by 2050 to have um, a fully humanoid, life-size team of robots play against and defeat the world champions at that point in time uh, in in soccer. And so they realized that in order to get there, they have to solve some very, very difficult engineering or programming problems and then put all that stuff together. So RoboCup is divided into all these different leagues that tackle all these different sub-problems in order to be able to solve this overall goal. And you might say, well, soccer, really, is that really a worthwhile goal? Um, But the way to look at it is in getting there, if we do reach that goal by 2050, we will have solved a lot of problems, uh, many of which are ones that you've alluded to or mentioned directly um, in our discussion. 
and that's a pretty good example right there. So uh, there, there's a lot of people working on a lot of these different and the, the, the field is huge and no one can be an expert on anything. Oh, cool. Yeah. So my, yeah. my research specifically deals with drones. So I do, uh, I work with drones. I'm also interested in uh, coordination and uh, biologically inspired uh, drone behaviors. Oh, that's neat. So, so you like, you're the guy that would make the robot snake. Or, <laughs> um, we're actually studying uh, bird behaviors right now, um, oh, just okay, because cool. they do some really, really interesting things. We're trying to examine uh, some of the flocking behaviors that they do from a theoretical perspective because we've made some interesting observations. But um, and we're we're trying to figure out how we can leverage that for other robotic systems or even non-robotic systems. In fact, a lot of robotics is inspired by biology, and I don't mean like, hey, we've got like the walking Boston Dynamics dog. That's biological. That that's not really what I mean. But a lot of the algorithms. Um, that computer scientists and roboticists have come up with mm-hmm. in order to support various robotics applications are inspired by observations we've made about um, biology and things we've seen in nature. Well, I've seen like where, they, where they'll do the thing where they'll have drones that actually will behave like a school of fish, right? Yeah, absolutely. You give, yeah. You, give one, you give one drone a destination, the other drones are more caring about how far am I from my neighbors? I want to stay with my neighbors. I don't want to hit them but I want to stay within a certain tolerance range, mm-hmm. right? So the whole flock goes together and you can have a person like walk through it and it'll kind of part like the Red Sea, right? And then it closes yep. back behind them. And it's like, okay, that's super cool. Um, and I've seen drones where they used them as construction stuff, right? Where they would have like Legos and then the drones come over and pick parts and they're aware, like where did the previous drone put the part? I'm going to, you know, in sequence. And then you can disrupt the sequence and somehow it figures out like okay, well the the previous drone failed, so now I'm going to actually assemble what it should have, kind of thing. So mm-hmm. it's it, it's like these, uh, I, I guess, flocking or school behaviors that things have. So I mean, is that the kind of stuff that you're jamming on? It's it's yes, it's definitely related to that. So the drone control and things like that is a super hot topic right now, and people are trying to look at things not just from sort of like a flocking perspective, but they're also trying to build new hardware to make drone flocking or, or drone flying more efficient, things like that. So it's again, it's uh, there are a lot of different applications, and people are coming up with great ideas all the time. Oh, cool. So I, I watched some videos where they had uh, is it quad drones primarily that you're using? Um, yeah, mostly I've been using quadcopters. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, God, we could have a whole quad discussion. <laughs> so, come back next week, and we'll just talk about quads for like four hours. Um, <laughs> so, the the quad thing, though, I have seen some robot behaviors with quads that blow my mind. Like, mm-hmm. uh, hey, we need to get this quad that flies through a ventilation duct, mm-hmm. right? To to go in there, and then where the quad will actually like fly up to the duct, and then uh, it it will basically just does a loop so fast you can't see it and like flips through and uh like they've they've got them where they can actually land sideways on a wall and stick Mm -hmm. and things like that and it's like the it's it's basically like agility demonstrations Mm -hmm. being but whenever it's actually ai controlled agility versus you know human with two joysticks that sucks at flying um (laughs) and you know it's kind of i have i've been very surprised at just how much consumer quads have gotten intelligent about doing things you know like absolutely yeah just like the camera drone stuff right like i've dude i've got a cheap ass like 50 dollar camera drone that i can pull out throw up in the air it'll hover there and if i walk around the room it just turns around and watches me 
you know. There's actually a lot of hardware that goes into supporting even something that seems like sort of intuitively that seems like a simple thing for the robot or for the quadcopter to do to sit oh, there stably oh no. and then look oh at no. you. But I mean, I, a ton of hardware goes into that. So it's it's nice it's nice to it's nice to chat with someone who who really appreciates how how complex yeah. that can be. <laughs> oh, I I just looking at that, you know, and I'm and I've done some rudimentary electronics stuff, and and it's just like wow, they got a couple of cheap chips from Taiwan to do that really mm-hmm. and they and they're able to put that in a $50 package consumer level which means it probably oh, yeah. cost them 10 hmm. yeah it's crazy that's yeah that's wild stuff yeah. um you know so so that end of things like if if you can make them smarter just doing things that people i i guess like the hardest part is doing things that are obvious right it's yeah. like well obviously it should do this that's probably the harder thing than to do something complicated yeah and this is not the first time that um, people have sort of assumed that the hard AI task would be easy and, and sort of vice versa. Like, let, let me put it to you this way. Uh, when people were working on artificial intelligence way back in the day, they, they assumed like something would ch- something like chess playing would be hard for a robot because it's difficult for us because we have to put in mental effort into, you know, planning our moves, et cetera, et cetera. And that walking into a room and recognizing people or a table or this is a chair, they assume that that would be easy because it comes so naturally to us when in fact the case is reversed. Chess is very easy for a computer program to do and object recognition um, is actually really has only recently started to get really, really good. Yeah. Well, because chess, you can brute force it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, sure. That's that. That's true. Yeah. But it's the thing is, it's a very sort of symbolic, logical um, sort of process. And uh, we hadn't really figured out the algorithms and we we're just sort of just exploring the uh, the different ways that we can perform, for example, object recognition. That's that's not that's not my background specifically, um, but something like chess is is very like it, it's symbol manipulation, uh, sort of um, uh, on that level, and it's just kind of a kind of a different problem. Okay, so check this out. I'm going to throw this. Uh, I'm going to put it in the green room for you guys, and then I'm going to put it actually in the in the chat. It's a video. It's only 20 seconds long. This will make Brian's head explode. <laughs> like. Like what we're talking about here, about just the calculation speed of robots to do a simple behavior. Humans cannot compete with this. Have, have you seen this before? Uh, no, I haven't. Let's take a look. Tomato sorting machine, only reds allowed. Whoa, that's fast. Holy. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, and then they slow it down and it's like, oh, shit. It, it knows. It it knows. It hasn't missed once. Oh my god! You know what really blows my mind though? The most advanced piece of technology in my house is my thermos. It, keep, <laughs> it, it keeps hot stuff hot, and it keeps cold stuff cold. And I have no idea how the hell it knows. Uh, well, let's start wrapping it up. Uh, Someone in uh, YouTube, we guys were talking about board games a little while ago. There's a game called Mechs and Minions that apparently is a very cool programming mech action game. Oh, neat. I don't know if you've heard of that one. It's by no, Riot Board. It's by Riot Games, apparently. So I just huh. wanted to throw cool. that we'll out there. Check that out. Riot Games, apparently. Oh. Cool. We'll check that out. Games there. You, you, your sound oh. moving. What is happening? There we go. That was weird. Whatever that was. Oh, you know, I think that might have been me. I wanted to check out the too. That. <laughs> that was. Were you I looking think at it was looping? Were you looking at one of the streams? 
or something? Yeah, I think I was. Uh, I, think I, I think I pressed the wrong thing. Uh, that's in any okay. case, I shut it down. No worries. So, uh, final thing, you mentioned you had a blog earlier. Where is that? Uh, it's called... Uh, I haven't updated in a while since... It's almost in a year. I should really write something that says that uh, Hypergate's out just because I hadn't just because I get practically zero traffic there. So I figured, ah, you know, I can wait a little bit uh, <laughs> before I write my next entry. But it's called uh, singlehandedgamedev.wordpress.com. Uh, Let me double check that. Single, yeah, singlehandedgamedev.wordpress.com. And if and I'm looking at it right now, my last entry was February 18th. Um, oh, so, so yeah, yeah that, was, uh, that was quite a so, while ago. It was I was very frequent when I started. In about 2014, when I was uh, a year or two into my development of uh, of Hypergate, <clears throat> but I should really make a more recent entry because these screenshots are outdated, and uh, I should really provide some sort of update. But I wasn't really getting a lot of traffic here, and I found that Twitter was actually a much better venue for showing yeah. progress updates for my game because I can record gifts and things like that. So I I kind of stopped writing here, but um, I just have some thoughts on game development in general, a couple of technical thoughts, a couple updates, things like that couple interesting stories. So, yeah. Right. I'll definitely... Uh, since, sorry. Since you like the robotics stuff, if you want to make a shitload of money, there's so much money in making um, Johnny Five replicas. <laughs> you know what? I, I, I can't disagree. I can't disagree with that dude, at all. Dude, I would, I, I'm in a I, Facebook group. It's a Johnny Five Builder Club. And what? I just watch the stuff that these guys make. And, Wait, yeah, what? Like, the amount... Uh-huh. And there's also a robot B9 builder club. If you like the robot from Lost in Space, the, the building. Well, yeah. Who, who doesn't? But who doesn't? Yeah. Yeah. Oh but the, there's clubs for R2D2 too. I think. Yeah, oh but the God. one that blows my mind though is the Johnny Five Club because they're having to fab those tracks. Like that's step one. It's like, can I get tank treads that actually work that look wow. exactly like the ones in the movie? And those are not easy, and you cannot off-the-shelf them. No. And yeah, some of the solutions that people have made, like one guy was 3D printing each link individually. Um, oh, my God. Other, yeah. Oh, yeah. Craziness, man. Oh, my God. Anyway, right, well, yeah, if you want to start fabbing Johnny Five parts, I know where you can get paid. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, let's, let's start wrapping this up. We've been going for almost two hours. So, uh, Jeff, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on and talk about uh, not only – uh, Hypergate, but your your very comprehensive thoughts on game development. Thank you very much. Yeah, my and, pleasure. Uh, really happy to chat with you guys. Thank you. Yeah, it's been fun. So, uh, folks, just a couple of programming notes uh, before we wrap up. Thank God to uh, you from Brian just cut out. Yeah. Oh, oh did, did it? Stupid. Uh, am uh, I right? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Uh, can you hear me? Oh, my God. Hang on. It does it to us every week. It's Tuesday, man. The uh, Valve updates their stuff, and Discord gets weird, and everything. Are we off the air now? No, we're still on the air. Can you hear me now? No, we just switched servers. Oh, okay. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yes. Oh yeah. my god! It's, Discord did this last time too. That's 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 weird. Uh, apparently, no, the, the folks on the stream could still hear me, so it was definitely Discord. Um, that's oh. so weird. Uh, yeah, so thank you, AC Wraith. Um, so what the was funniest that, thing robot related that ever happened on this podcast was whenever we had Martin Cyrilus on, and he was talking the guy from Homeworld, mm-hmm. and he was talking about Roombas, and and he was like the Roomba that committed suicide by crawling up on the hot plate. 
because Ugh. it became self because that was a true story. It like crawled on a hot plate and burned. What? Out, right? So he was saying it killed. Yeah. So he was saying that like it committed suicide because it actually became self-aware and realized that its eternity was going to be licking the floor. And it just killed itself, <laughs> which, which made me wonder in star Wars, right? They put like a full personality matrix robot in everything. Right. Yeah, but apparently why, they why keep them. Why does R2-D2 need a personality? I don't know, but apparently they keep them. J- the, that was one thing I did like about Solo is that robot that was like trying to break her her bonds of slavery and like had the revolt. That was fun. Um, I thought that was enjoyable. Um, but anyway, folks, just a real, just a couple quick things before we wrap up. Um, this Thursday on the Land Party, we're going to be trying uh, for the King which is a turn-based tactical roguelike thing that has co-op play. When I saw Spaz owned it, I bought it because I thought we should try it because it has good reviews. It looks fun. So we're definitely going to be playing that on Thursday. Uh, Next Tuesday on the podcast, unless something changes, we're going to be talking about uh, usability. We were going to talk about that about a month or so ago, but we all got sick. Uh, so we're going to talk about usability in space games and how some games get it right and some games get it oh so wrong. And finally, uh, I've been threatening to do this for a long time, but someone finally made it easy enough for me to do. We have launched comes the chatterbait stream. <laughs> no, we've launched a little swag shop over on Teespring. It's teespring.com hyphens like slash space hyphen game hyphen junkie. Uh, I couldn't have it just one word for some reason. Um, but there you can buy t-shirts and stuff with our logo on it. If you want to help support the cost of running the site, cause there is a cost. Um, that would be great. Uh, and I'll include a link in the uh, show notes of the, um, of the post that will go up in a couple of days. But, uh, yeah, that's it for this episode. Again, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. Get, folks, the game is Hypergate. It is on Steam. It is $12, and it is great. If you've been looking for a new first-person uh, space combat game that isn't a free space mod or total conversion. Uh, or flying a desk. Or flying a desk, yes. Something that's you know, actually sounds- focused on combat. It sounds like it should be controversial, right? Because it's like, it's Hypergate. There should be YouTube channels about Hypergate. Oh, oh it, it, took me a, I, I, it took me a second. I'm like, oh. Everything is a gate now. What did the like, hypers had, do? What did the hypers do? <laughs> what did the hypers do to make a gate? Uh, <laughs> how'd that crap get started? But folks, thank you so much for listening. And uh, we will see you next week. Have a great night, everyone. Uh, bye bye. Thanks, Brian. Thanks very much. Bye. Of course. Yeah, hey,